0: The scripture reading for this morning comes from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought... the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. This is God's word.
1: We're looking at the uh, life of Moses, and... um, This is one of the most famous passages uh, in the entire Bible, really. Uh, It's the classic example of a human being who actually believed in God, but it wasn't until this moment that God became a living spiritual reality to him. And so we're going to learn four quick things in this text. The first is, uh, what's the context by which we encounter God? How do you encounter God? Second is, what does it mean to encounter God? What is it? A spiritual encounter. Thirdly, uh, how do you do it? What's the way? How is that possible? And lastly, how do you know it's for real? How do you know it's genuine or sincere? So we have the context, the definition, or what does it mean, the way that it happens, and uh, I guess the assurance, how do you know it's for real? First is, uh, how do you have an encounter with spiritual reality? What's the context behind this? How does this happen? And we're going to look at a couple things, and then we're going to apply some principles uh, here. Here's Moses. Just to kind of give you a background, here's Moses. He's on a detour in life. In verse 4, it says, uh, when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look at this. Now, literally, in verse 4, that Hebrew word, to go over, is to turn aside. It's used in reference to a detour, And if you want to think about what a detour is, a detour is when you've taken kind of a left turn because where you were headed has been blocked from you. And what you see here is Moses was living out two detours in life. There were two detours going on at the same time. The larger detour, the overarching detour was Moses, his whole life had become derailed. He was raised as an aristocrat, really in royalty, and he was brought up in his own mind as a redeemer for his own people, as a leader of the Hebrews. That's what he came to realize. But he killed a man. He killed somebody. And as a result, because of the person that he killed, he became a fugitive and he became on a run. He went on the run. He was in the middle of the desert. He was in the middle of nowhere. His life had taken a complete left turn, a detour. But the irony is this. The only reason that Moses ever encounters God is because he was in the middle of the desert, because he was in the middle of nowhere, because his life took a left turn, because he took a detour in life. But there's a smaller detour. That's the overarching detour. There's a smaller detour. Out in this desert, because his life is so screwed up, he was at one point a prince in Egypt. Now he's just a shepherd. And a shepherd, even in those days, was a very lowly occupation. He was basically a nobody. And in that obscurity, he's out there in the desert. And in verse 3, he comes across this site. And it says, so Moses thought, I'm going to go over there, see this strange sight.' The site was a burning bush, this burning bush. The phrase there, again, go over is the same word. It's the same phrase. It's to turn aside. Here's the bush on one side. Here's Moses on the other side. There must have been, the context of that language says that there must have been something like a ravine in between. He had to leave his sheep behind. The sheep were on one side. There must have been this valley or this ravine and he decided to go over there. Now, why does he go over there? This burning bush, this strange sight, literally the word strange. When we hear the word strange, we use the word as in like it's weird. That person is strange. But really the word here. The literal Hebrew word here um, for strange is it's inexplicable. It's humanly inexplicable. Here's Moses, even though his life context has completely changed, his worldview has been set. He understood the world under one paradigm, but the burning bush revealed something inexplicable to him. It changed or it's challenged his view of reality. It's what we call in our day, if you read business books, if you read uh, Harvard Business Review or anything like that, this concept, especially the 80s, was very, very large, the concept of a paradigm shift. Moses was experiencing a paradigm shift in reality. In other words, he had one interpretation of reality, but this burning bush challenged him to rethink that interpretation. That's why he goes over. Now, all this is kind of there. I'm going to kind of unpack this a little bit. What does this mean? What do we learn from this? First, a lot of people say, when I speak to them about how they came to know God, they say that their encounter with the real God happened because at one point they thought their life was going one way and then something happened and it shifted them. Their lives went on a detour. Now, that's not new. We hear that all the time. I hear that all the time. You know, I came to the wrong job. And I encounter God. I came for the wrong city. I never wanted to be here. And then I encounter God. I was in a bad relationship, the wrong relationship for some people. Or I grew up in a terrible family. Or, um, you know, I, I just, I'm disgusted with my body, just my whole life experience with myself. Disgusted myself. I'm disgusted with my decisions, the things that I've done in my life. My whole life has derailed. Been on a detour. But the irony is this. That if you look at this text, the context of one of the greatest, most well-known, most historically understood and remembered encounters between the human race and with God was what? On a detour. Where life, I mean Moses' career detoured. Moses' family life lost. Moses' identity on a detour. Everything was lost. He's in this desert near a ravine in a meaningless job taking care of sheep. But here God meets with him in the wilderness, in the desert. When everything, had, he thought everything had gone wrong in his life. Now, when you're, if you're in this place where you feel like things have gone wrong in my life, if you're really wise, if you read this text, if you want to apply this part of the text to your life, you have to rethink your view of reality. That's what's going on. In that wilderness, God is taking you out to challenge your view of life, your worldview, everything that you thought was real, everything that you thought was true. Because Moses would, never, Moses would never have encountered God unless he had done that. You can meet God in the detours of your life. That's one thing we take away. Second thing we take away is even when things are going wrong, we still, even though you're on a detour, you still have to go over. You still have to turn aside. Moses' problems brought him near God. But, you know, if you think about this, Moses never said, I think I'm going to search for God today. Moses wasn't seeking God. He wasn't thankful for God. He wasn't acknowledging God in his life. He wasn't even looking for God. And yet, he still had to go. Something brought him out there to go over there, turn aside, meaning he had to leave his sheep. Now, how do you apply that? Think about this. Moses had to leave the ordinary busyness of his life. He had to take time to reflect. He had to take time to explore. He had to take time to examine to think about things. You know, he could have easily said, wow, that's really strange. I'd love to go over there and see it and look into that, but I have this sheep. I'm busy. I've got a busy life. He doesn't do that. Instead, he actually goes over there. It means he had to leave his sheep behind. Sheep, they're wandering. That means he lost his sheep. He he actually went and and saw that through. Things happen in your life. It brings you near to God. It's going to challenge your view of reality, but it's important because a lot of people who are brought near to God because something has happened in their lives, they're unwilling to turn aside. They're unwilling to explore further. They just stay busy. They don't want to come aside. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to meditate. it. They don't want to explore. They don't want to read about it. They don't want to study about it. They don't want to examine. They don't want to turn aside. They get near, but they don't want to go over. And so, so many times I've heard, you know, I really want to know God. I desire to know God. I really want want to know God. When they're given the opportunity to explore, you got Bible studies. You got community groups, fellowship opportunities, so many opportunities. But what do they say? Oh, it's too large. This church is too large or it's too small. It's too many of one type of people. Oh, I'm in a different stage in life. I'm not really ready for that. Oh, it's too intellectual for me. Or it's not intellectual enough for me. I'm too busy. I'm not ready. I'm overwhelmed. I'm not really sure. What are you saying? You're saying something strange has brought you near. But you're really not in that place where you really want to know God. That's what you're saying. You're still trying to fit God in your understanding of reality, your understanding of church. Your life is completely re- uh, derailed, and there's a, there may be this paradigm shift that's happening in your life. That's the larger detour in your life, but you don't want to turn aside. You don't want to make the smaller detour in your life. You got to take the time to turn aside. You got to let go of that busyness. Even me, as a minister, my busyness is all church-related. Most of my business is church-related. The thing is, if I don't take the time to turn aside, to go over, to explore, my view of reality will not change. And I may be stuck in a certain view of reality that, that actually is incorrect or flawed. You have to take regular time alone with God. Now, the third thing we learn here is that the burning bush is something that challenges our model of reality. We kind of said this. I'm going to give you some examples of what do I mean. What do you mean when you say it challenges your view of reality? Here's some examples. First, for a lot of us, um, we're experiencing spiritual emptiness in our lives. Your spiritual emptiness alone is like a burning bush. That spiritual need or longing is like a burning bush. But we tend to rationalize it. In our world today, we want to rationalize everything. And so, why are you so unhappy? Think about this. We think... The reason why I'm happy is because of my psychology, my psychological makeup. Or the reason why I'm unhappy is because of the medicines that I'm taking. Or it's because of my social structure, my social culture, the world that I'm living in. Or maybe it's my job. My job is just miserable. I can't stand the people at work. I can't stand the work I'm doing. It's meaningless to me. Um, Or it could be your culture. Your cultural upbringing has trapped you, you feel like. Or it could be the politics. A lot of people, especially today, in our city, politics is huge. And it's what makes us, it's a source of a lot of our unhappiness. Or it could be your physiology. Or your physical makeup. Things that, about you that make you unhappy. That make you feel unhappy. But if you start to realize that there's something underneath all of that, there's still a problem underneath all those things. And that's the reason why you're spiritually empty. What is that? That's a burning bush. It's challenging your worldview because you thought, if I could just have better politics, a better government, if I could just have a, better, a nicer body, if I could just have better looks, if I could stand to look at myself in the mirror. A lot of us think that way. If I could just have a relationship in my life, I'm lonely. I, that's what I need to do. Then you're not encountering, you're not in a place where you're encountering God. You're ignoring the burning bush. You're not going over Another uh, example of a burning bush, something that challenges your model of reality, is success. A lot of us, it's kind of a tail off the first one, a lot of us, you know, at this stage in our lives, get successful. We experience some success in our lives. And uh, you get successful, you get married, you might have children. You, a lot of us are now moving into homes. Um, you buy your first nice car in your life, and you realize after you've acquired these things, it's not as, I don't know, satisfying as you've hoped. It's not as meaningful to you as you hoped. Now you have to think about this. If you were made only for this world, and if this world is all that there is, having lots of money or being successful or having some sort of intimacy in your life or having a nice house, a new house, Or being finally in that neighborhood that you wanted, that should be enough. That should be enough for us. Finding love or finding that career, experiencing that one career moment, or being wealthy, it should make you happy. And yet, so many people in our world are not happy. So instead of going over, instead of leaving the distraction, at least to reflect, to meditate, to think about this, you know what we end up saying? We say, I know the problem. I need more money. That's the reason why I'm unhappy. Because that person is wealthier. I want to be like him. And who's he? I'm, he's a schlub. I should be better than him. Right? That's what we think. Or, I need a new job. I need a better job. I need, to, I need a higher role in my job. Or, we say, I need a relationship in my life. I need a new relationship in my life. I need a boyfriend. I need a girlfriend. Or, we say, you know, I need, uh, some, some form, I need a vacation. A lot of us blame it on the fact that we're overworked. And so I, need, I just need to get away, just to recharge. There's a lot of things. You know, I need more things in my life. We're relying on everything that the world has to offer. And if we were built for this world, and we're relying on everything that the world has to offer, and you're still unhappy, you know what you're doing? You're ignoring a burning bush in your life. Here's another example. Some people were spiritually empty and um, we, you know, we said so far that when you're spiritually empty, that's, that itself is a burning bush. But what do you do? We try other religions. We try, you know, we get into a cause. And we want to support that cause because that's going to bring us a, a sense of worth or a source of joy. So here's one person, he goes, he get, becomes a Buddhist. We have another person who becomes, you know, I go, converts to Judaism. Another person converts to Islam. You have another person who converts to Hinduism. You have another person who decides, I'm just going to become an atheist. Another person, I'm going to get into the environment. Another person, I'm going to join the political party. And for a while, you experience a sense of exhilaration, the newness, and some sort of spiritual enlightenment in all of that. Now, think about this. We conclude at the end of that, there must be many ways to God. That's our conclusion at the end. You know what that's like? It's like this. Here's a person, he goes into a bar. You got like five people, they walk into a bar. It sounds like I'm about to tell you a joke, right? You got one guy, he he gets drunk, and he he gets drunk because he's had whiskey and tonic. Another person gets drunk because he has gin and tonic. Another person, he gets drunk because he's at rum and tonic, a uh, rum and, rum and uh, uh, tonic. another person because he's at vodka and tonic. And so they conclude at the end of the day, it must be the tonic. You see? All of us, when you're pursuing a cause, anything that gives you some sort of exhilaration in your life, we tend to misappropriate that, thinking that, ah, it just must be another way to experience God. We're still busying ourselves. We're still distracting ourselves. We're missing the point. I'm going to give you one uh, last example. It's a bit more intellectual. There's a lot of us who say, well, there's some of us, especially a lot of people in our world today, they say, um, that uh, we're just a a combination. Human beings, we're just a collection of molecules that have kind of formed some sort of bonds that have come together and became proteins, and then the proteins have come together and somehow became life. And so we're really just a collection of molecular bonds and chemical bonds that have come together, and as a result, human beings have no intrinsic value in life. But then something happens. Something happens in our lives, and it's going to challenge your paradigm. You go through intense suffering. Now, I'm going to give you some, I guess, uh, some graphic examples. A friend of yours gets raped, or a family member is dying because they're sick, they have an illness. And so you have one person who's screaming for justice, and another person who's pleading for his life. What would your counsel be? Could you stay consistent with what you really believe? Would you be able to look at that person in the eye, say to that friend, say to that family member, because you're hurting inside when you see somebody you love who's damaged and hurting. Would you be able to tell yourself, well, I mean, human beings have no real value. I mean, your lives, our lives have no real meaning or purpose. We're just a bunch of molecules coming together and forming, just uh, by chance we form a bunch of bonds, chemical bonds that have formed us into, into uh, some sort of chemical constituency And as a result, there's there's no such thing as injustice. There's no such thing as violence. If anything, that's natural. Life is all about natural selection. Strong, dominating over the weak. That's natural. And you know what? These people are weak. Would you be able to tell that person that? Would you be able to tell yourself hurting like that? Would you be able to say that to yourself? that we're just chemicals that have come together and formed these bonds, and as a result, no intrinsic value, there's no intrinsic value to someone who's been damaged by another person, or no intrinsic value to someone who's pleading for their lives because they're sick, you have to stay consistent. Come on, you know that. You have to stay consistent. You know in our hearts, deep inside, there's a transcendent knowledge that there must be justice, that human beings have certain rights, that life is valuable, that there is intrinsic value to human life. In each of these cases, each of those four cases, there is a burning bush. We see them in our lives all the time. You go through this larger detour in life, and that detour leads you to challenging your worldview of what is real and what is true. But what you have to do is make that smaller detour. You have to turn aside. You have to go over. Oftentimes, when you go through a large detour, there's this rethinking of your life paradigms. What am I hinging my life on? What am I hooking on in life? And you have to go over. That's how you do it. That's the context. The larger detour leading to the smaller detour. Now, what does that mean? What is a spiritual encounter with God? What does that mean? What is it? From this text, we see that really what it is, it's meeting a God who is fire. Very simple, right? Moses comes to the burning bush. It's meeting a God who is fire. When God appears... He often appears as fire. In Hebrews chapter 12, which we read in our call to worship here at the end, our God is a consuming fire. Why does God choose to appear? God could have appeared as anything. When he appears, he could have appeared as anything. So when he, choo- when he chooses to appear as fire, there must be meaning to that. Fire's to do with what? What is the meaning of fire? Because a lot of us say, you know, I believe. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we see God as a consuming fire. What is fire? It is a powerful living reality. That's what God is trying to demonstrate. That's what he's trying to demonstrate. Fire is a definitive metaphor for God. What do we mean by that? It means first, it means that it's real. It's reality. It's going to jolt you awake. It's unlike water. Water, you put your hand in water and you can manipulate water. You can put your hand in water and kind of stay there. You can disperse water. You can take water. You can, you can dash it out. You can disperse it. You can't do that with fire. You put your hand in fire, you're going to jolt back. In fact, the moment you put anything in fire, what happens? That, those chemical bonds that held you together actually fall apart. Water you can shape. Fire shapes you. Water you could put your hand in and manipulate. Fire, when you put your hand into it, manipulates you. That's why God chooses to come as fire. Fire is unchanging. Fire is unnegotiating. It's non-negotiable. That's why God comes as fire. Moses asks God, "What is your name?" And God tells him, God actually tells him his name here. people for centuries have been trying to figure that out. What does that mean? When does God give Moses his name? It's when God calls him. First God calls him, and, and then Moses says, what is your name? You know, he, uh, God comes to Moses and he says, I want you to start doing things. I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to talk to him. Moses doesn't want to hear it. Moses doesn't want to hear it. What he says is, how can I do this? I'm not up for this. I don't have the gifts for this. I don't, I'm not, I, I, I've been away for so long. People aren't going to listen to me. What are they going to say when, uh, when, when I go to them? They're going to ask me, who's calling you? Who's that that's calling? I don't even know your name. What does God say? He says, tell them, I am who I am sent you. God says to Moses, my name is I am who I am. In other words, my name is not what you want me to be. I am who I am. What does it mean to really experience spiritual reality? It means something is real, something that you couldn't have made up, something that you can't make up. We want a God who meets our needs. Most people today in our biblically illiterate culture, we pick up a Bible and we try to formulate and make the words out. We read this Bible and when we take the words, we try to manipulate it to fit our needs. But that's the point. A God that meets your needs, a God that fits in your worldview, will never be able to contradict you, will never be able to challenge you, will never be a consuming fire. You'll never be able to approach that God and he'll never be able to be real to you. I'll tell you why. A God you create will never be able to say you are condemnable. This is bad. You are in sin. But at the same time, a God that you create will never be able to say when you feel guilty or convicted, a God that you create will never be able to say you are forgiven, you are loved, you are acceptable. Do you understand that? How can a God, think about this, how can a God you create comfort you when you are suffering? How can a God that you create comfort you when you've done something foolish or when you have a poor self-image? How can a God you create tell you you're valuable in those moments? You have to go to a God that reveals himself in the Bible, the true God, who often says disturbing things to you, who often says, Like things that are going to confuse you horribly, but he's real. And if you think about it, every real person is like that. You know, here's somebody who says to you, "Um, listen, I'd like to get to know you, but I I want you to know, I want to get to know you, but I also know you are a stubborn person, you are a nasty person, you are an evil person, you're judgmental, you never listen to other people. You know what that means? They don't really want to get to know you because they've formed a view of you that they are not willing to change. They don't really want to get to know you. Their mind is already made up about you. They're not willing to be changed. So spirituality really at first means you found a real God, not a God that you've made up, not a God that you've, that, that you've created to meet your needs, but a real God. Look at the God. Look at the real God. He's fire. Fire is on one hand simultaneously beautiful, attractive, and yet deadly, lethal. That's fire. On one hand, fire is very, very beautiful. You have a campfire, lots of kids want to come around. They all, they just marvel at the beauty of a campfire. But if you get too close to it, it's scary. It's treacherous. It's dangerous. Rudolf Otto, he's a famous German philosopher who wrote uh, probably his seminal work is the idea of the holy. And I'm going to paraphrase the book. Basically what he says is that holiness is like that. Holiness is like a fire. Because we're all attracted to beauty. Holiness is like real beauty. You're attracted to things that are beautiful. Everybody has been built inside them an attraction to beautiful things. And yet, when that beautiful thing comes near, it is like a fire. It becomes scary for you. You get nervous around things that are beautiful. You get choked up around things that are beautiful. You could be incredibly articulate. But when you come across something that is truly beautiful, your archetypal understanding of what is beautiful, You get nervous, you get afraid, it becomes scary, we draw away. You know why? Because it brings out all of your inadequacies. You put your hand close to fire, what does it do? It brings out all of your inadequacies. It reveals how weak your skin is. It reveals how how weak your body is. That's how it is spiritually. You come across something that is incredibly beautiful in your life, truly beautiful. Think about when you first met your wife. Think about when you first met the person that you were going to marry. There's a sense of nervousness. There's a sense of anxiety. You know why? Because you come across holiness, a definition of what is called holiness, the idea of the holy. You can't play with fire. You want to get close, but you can't get too close, or, or you're, going to blow, you're going to burn up. You're going to explode. You're going to disintegrate. And that's the biblical view of God. God is absolutely holy. He's beautiful on one hand, and that beauty makes him incredible. That holiness makes him incredibly beautiful. So you want to get close. We all want to get near, but if you get too close, you'll burn up. You'll disintegrate. God is absolutely holy, and he's absolutely loving at the same time. That's the biblical view of God. He's beautiful, and he's warm, and he's holy, but he's consuming. And at the same time, he's absolutely loving. And accepting and assuring. In the modern world, we have difficulty seeing those two entities of God as one and the same. So, after a while, what we've done, society has created two separate gods in return. We have one type of God that is demanding, holy and demanding, frightening and unattractive. And then there's that God that's completely accepting, very, very attractive because there's no judgment so on one hand you have a god that is holy but not loving or a god that's incredibly accepting but not holy that it just condones and accepts everything that we do the bible says neither of those gods are real the biblical god is a god of fire on one hand he's incredibly warm but he's burning he's so warm he's burning with holiness On one hand, he's holy, burning with holiness, zero tolerance for evil, but also he's burning with a passion, burning with love for his people. He's relentless in pursuing his people. He will not stop until he has his people as his own. And when that kind of God comes to you, that's when you know that you have a God that you haven't made up, a holy God and an absolutely loving God on one hand, totally committed to justice. Evil will pay. Evil will come to an end. And yet at the same time, a loving God. He says, come to me if you're tired. Come to me if you're weak. Come to me if you're burdened. Because I will love you. I will accept you. You are valued. You are beautiful. That's a real God. Spiritual reality means that, in a sense, that you, when you have God in your life, the real God in your life, you have on one hand a sense of holiness and conviction because you know that you are distant from God and yet you now have a sense of his love and an absolutely, absolute beauty and warmth of God that has come near to you, the fire of God. That's Moses. Seeing this bush and it's not being consumed, he comes near He goes over there. Now, why is that possible? What's the means? What's the way? When Moses goes over there, the first thing God says, God doesn't say, he doesn't say, uh, you know, hey, give me a hug. That's not what he says, right? God says, Moses, Moses. Verse 5, Moses, Moses. Whenever you see that doublet in reference to a person, tremendous emotional content. So God is actually speaking very forcefully to Moses. He's saying, Moses, Moses, stop. Don't come any further. And then he says, I want you to take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. He doesn't say you're about to stand on holy ground. He says you are on holy ground. This is holy ground. Now, verse 6 says Moses is scared, and he should be. He knows. He ought to be scared. Why? When God came down on Mount Sinai later on, about 15 chapters later, If even an animal touched that mountain that God was coming down on, he said that animal will die. God says, Moses, I want you to take off your sandals because you are on that holy ground. Why is Moses scared? When we hear holy ground, we hear, oh, Moses is taking off his sandals because God's saying, hey, hey, I should be respected here. Give me some respect. That's not what's going on here. Moses knows right now He's standing in the spot where people die. He's in the fatal zone. He's in the death zone. He's supposed to die. That bush should be burning up. Moses should be burning up right now. But first of all, not only doesn't he die, not only does he not burn up, But he continually talks to God. God continually relates with him. The next two chapters, all you see is God talking to him, God challenging him, God empowering him, God saying, I'm sending you, I'm going to be with you, don't you worry, I'll be there, I'm with you, I'm with these people, I hear you. All you see on Moses' end is, why? Why? I don't want to go. I don't want to go. But what if this happens? But what if this happens? But what if they say this? What if they do this? What am I going to say then? What am I going to do then? God says, don't worry. I'm sending you. I'm here with you. He's constantly reassuring Moses. He's talking with him. He's dialoguing with him. On one hand, he says, Moses, you better stop. Do not take a step more, not a step further. You are on holy ground. You are in that fatal zone, and yet, he continues to talk with him in other words what he's saying he's not saying moses you're not good enough don't come back he's saying moses i'm calling you i want you to take off your sandals but i'm going to hear you i want to relate with you you know you never know you don't realize you're in a real relationship with somebody whether it's a friendship or you know a, a significant other in your life until what how do you break that ice until you've had your first real argument once you've had that argument you know now what the intimacy bridge has been established you can be completely real with that person here's god telling moses on one hand moses you are there and i am here because if you take a step closer you could burn up and die and yet he's he's arguing with moses they cross the bridge they're talking They're arguing. Moses is whining and complaining and God is assuring and convincing. He's trying to empower him. You want to know the grace of God? Here's Moses arguing and complaining to the Lord of the universe in the fatal zone. He should be burning up and dying, yet he's complaining and he's arguing and yet what does God do? He's hearing you. He's listening. He keeps this personal relationship. He gets intimate with God. He says, Moses, I'm with you. Moses, I'm with you. I'm going to be there with you. Moses comes over. He's attracted to this bush that's not being consumed by God, by this fire. But in reality, he's the mystery. He's the burning bush, right? He's the mystery. He's not consumed. The bush is really a picture of Moses. And how does that happen? It's because it says the angel of the Lord, the angel is actually there in the the bush, in the text. Moses is whining and complaining and he's he's unsubmissive, unsubmissive in the fatal zone and yet he's drawn to this bush that's not burning up. And why? Because the angel of the Lord is there. The mediating presence of God is there. The angel is there. The angel is there in the presence of God. He's mediating the presence of God in the bush, absorbing the heat absorbing the heat, absorbing the fire. Now, a lot of us say, if you paid attention, you're saying, that's interesting. There are a lot of angels, though, aren't there? There's a lot of angels in the Bible. There are a lot of angels in the Bible, but none of them are like this one. You see, when an angel appears in the Bible, I'll give you an example, Revelation 21, John sees an angel, and it's incredibly impressive. So what does John do? He falls down and he worships. But this angel, he says, He says, don't worship me. That's what happens. In this passage, you see Moses approaching the angel. And what does the angel do? He says, I want you to take off your sandals. Taking off your sandals, taking off your shoes, coming on bare feet is a representation of worship. He says, I want you to worship me. You're standing on holy ground, he says. Moses takes off his sandals and starts to worship, and the angel receives it. Who is this? who is this angel? Centuries later, in John chapter 4, you have this woman who is a prostitute. And he encou- she encounters this woman at a well. And they're having this dialogue. They're actually arguing. First, the man asks the woman for a drink. The woman says, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. They're starting this argument, this dialogue, this conversation. The man says, if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me and I give you living water. Tell me this water. Give me this water. Show me this water. They go back and forth. They're having this dialogue. That's what's going on. The climax of this conversation, the woman says at the end, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. I know that one day, the one who God will send to redeem his people is going to come, and when he comes, he will explain everything to me. And then Jesus says, I, am, I the one you, I I am. I, the one you speak of, am he. That phrase that he's using, ego me, is the same phrase when you translate it in the Old Testament, is the same exact phrase that's used here. When Moses says, what do I say when they, sent, when they ask me who sent you? God says, tell them I am sent you. I am that I am. In John chapter 8, the religious people, these religious leaders, they're arguing with this young teacher. And they're being challenged by this young teacher. And finally, they turn to this teacher and they say, how dare you contradict us? Don't you know who we are? We're children of Abraham. Are you greater than Abraham? And the teacher responds, I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, verily, verily, I say unto you, depending on what what version of the Bible you read. He says this, before Abraham was, I am. It's that same phrase. Ego eimi. I am that I am. The text says immediately at once they picked up stones and they tried to stone him. In both cases, John chapter 4, John chapter 8, egoemi means I am that I am. It's the same phrase that was used when God is speaking with Moses. In other words, what Jesus is saying in the New Testament is this. With me, I am. There was never a was because I never was. I never was. There was never a time when I was. I was. With me, there is no beginning. With me, there is no end. I depend on nothing for my existence. Everything in existence depends on me. I am. That's what Jesus is saying. Only God can do that. That's why they tried to stone him in John chapter 8. That's why the woman at the well runs back and says, could this be him? Could this be the Christ, the one that God has sent, the one that's going to come and save us and redeem us? It's only through Jesus Christ that you can actually have a God that you didn't create as well as a God that doesn't demand everything of you, perfection from you, nor accepts everything from you. Only through Jesus do you have a God that says you can come exactly as you are, but you will not leave exactly as you are. Only through Jesus you can have a God who says, yes, I am absolutely holy. You, I demand perfection, and yet, yet I accept you holy. I accept you as perfect in my eyes. A holy God and a loving God. You see, religion says you better be good. You want to get into God's graces? Because he is holy. You better be good. You better be good. You better obey. Then you will be accepted. But the God of the Bible, the God of Moses, our God here, sent Jesus Christ to the cross, his only son, to the cross, the angel. Sent him to the cross to die for our sins. In other words, what that means is God is so holy, he he is holier than just a demanding God. Because he says, no matter how hard you try, you will still never be able to live up to my demands. That's why he had to send Jesus, the perfect one. That's why it had to be Jesus. But at the same time, he's more loving than just an accepting God. You know why? He's more loving than any of the uh, gods that we've created. He's more loving than the, than the loving God that we've created in our minds. You know why? People say, oh gosh, I don't need Jesus. Because my God is loving. That's all I need. My God is loving. He loves me. He accepts everybody. Think about it. A God who just accepts you without cost. His love costs you nothing. His love cost him nothing. Not the God of the Bible. Not the God of Moses. God's love for you cost his own son. God's love for you. Jesus bore the nails. Jesus bore the crown of thorns. Jesus had to pay. He took the spear a lot of times we say well then why does this god seem so angry you see on one hand god is a god of fire you got to think about this god is a god of fire so there's wrath because there's justice because there's evil we need that kind of god you can't just have a god that accepts everybody because that means even hitler is accepted you see that a god that is angry a god that is wrathful because there's justice a one that he can't just forgive you he can't just let let it go Come on, anybody here who's been ever wronged in their lives, you know that. You know you can't just let it go when you've been really wronged. Partly because the anger that you have is not separate from the love that you have. The more that you love somebody, the more angry you will be. Think about it. Anybody who has a child will understand that. When, your child, when you see your child later on in his life and he's living absolutely the wrong way, in your mind the wrong way, there will be greater anger. That anger is probably proportional to how, you, how much you wanted him to live a different way of life. Why? It's not because there's love that's absent. It's because there's love that's present. Because you love your child, you're going to be angry with that child. That love is not separate from the anger. The anger is because he loves. Because he loves you, there will be justice. Because he loves you, there will be wrath. Because there's love. And you know how God demonstrated that love and demonstrated that justice? He sent Jesus Christ to the cross. That shows you He's more loving than a God that just accepts everybody. But also because He sent Jesus to the cross, it shows He's more holy than just a God that demands goodness from you. You have to come to this God through Jesus Christ. This God of fire, it's a God that you couldn't have made up with your, own, with your own imagination. But it's also a God of intimacy, more intimate than you could have ever imagined. And it's also a God that radically transforms you, more radically than you could have ever transformed on your own. And here's why. This God who demands so much, think about it, a God that just demands, a God that just accepts you is not dynamic, does not have many dimensions to him. It's not going to change your life. It's not going to change your life the way a God who atones at his own cost. He doesn't just forgive you. He atones at infinite cost to himself. Think about it. The pain of losing. Think about the one person in your life that you love more than anybody else and then losing that person. At infinite. You will never, ever let that go. It will haunt you. It will plague you. My father passed away at a very, very young age. And the day that my father uh, was buried, there was a child that was buried about 50 yards away on the same day. They were buried pretty much on the same day. So when we, at my father's funeral, there was another wake and funeral that was taking place for the six-year-old child. And it wasn't until about 20 years later, I'd, I'd visit my father's grave at least several times a year, and it wasn't about 20 years later where we actually bumped into that family. When we bumped into that family... Here's my mom. My mom's a very stoic, very calm. She just kind of sits there. And we'll just sit there and pay a moment of silence and we'll pray and we're done. But when we encountered this family, 20 years later, they were sobbing at the grave site as if it just happened. Think about the person that you love more than anybody else. You will never let that go. Here's God at infinite cost to himself sacrificing his own son for you. Does he not love you? Does he not desire that kind of intimacy with you? That and only that will change you. That will change you. It will change your life forever. Jesus Christ, the angel of God, sitting, absorbing the fire of God and mediating that fire so that you will not have to absorb and be consumed. He absorbs the wrath. What's the mark of the encounter? I'm going to close with just a few moments, just a few thoughts. Commentators remark about every place in the Bible. Anybody who has an encounter like this, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, Moses in Exodus chapter 3, there's never a time when God calls you in without sending you out. How do you know that you've encountered God? Moses became a burning bush. He became that bush. He... Experienced a detour in his life. He encountered the real, the real God, spiritual reality. He turned aside and he went over there, and he actually met the real God. And he actually met the real God through the angel, through Jesus Christ, mediating the presence of God. He became the burning bush. What that means is, first of all, none of us here have to be. I recently went on vacation in Miami. And uh, on the last night, uh, last day of that vacation, we went to the Bayside Marketplace in Miami, in the center of Miami, and there's this humongous tree in the middle of this marketplace. There's this big sign in front of the tree because this tree, the fascinating thing about this tree is it keeps getting bigger. The branches come down and become a part of the trunk. So what happens is it hardens and the tree just gets bigger and bigger. What that means here is that becoming the burning bush, you don't have to become that tree. You don't have to become a redwood God made himself present in a bush, in a small bush. It wasn't the bush that was highlighted, right? It was the presence of God, the very glory of God, because of what Christ has done. When Jesus died, the temple curtain tore from top to bottom, ripped apart from top to bottom, because what he's saying now is that we can be intimate, because Jesus mediated the presence between you and I, I can be intimate with you. You have access. You become that burning bush. You, You have the very presence of God in your life. There's no more temple that you need to go to. That's why there's no temples in Christianity. There's no more high priest that you need to go to to mediate the presence. Why? Because you are. In heaven, you are a royal priesthood. You are a priest. All because of the angels. Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I have entered the fatal zone. The wrath of God, the fire of God has been poured on me. I've become completely consumed by the fire, disintegrated by the fire. Why? So you have the warmth, you have the beauty, you have the intimacy. You become that burning bush, not consumed, because Jesus was consumed. And it means you don't have to work to become a redwood to do it. You don't have to work to become a Redwood. Secondly, it, very quickly, if, if you've encountered God through Jesus Christ, where there was once fear, there will be courage. Where there was once pride, there will be humility that will humble you. The holy demanding, the holy presence of God that is more demanding than any demanding God that you've created in your mind will humble you. And yet, it will replace that, it will replace that pride with courage. A courage that eliminates fear, because that God sends you. I wish I could go into this. We're running out of time. So third thing, God says, I am. He is what he is. He is who he is. He was there before you ever, you know, were born, before the beginning of time. There was never a time when he was. That means he is not what you would ever want him to be. It's not what you need want him to be when, to fit your needs. People interested in the church often come to me. They say, oh, gosh, I want to become a Christian. But but I don't want to give up this and I don't want to give up that. If I become a Christian, does that mean I have to give up my sex life? If I become a Christian, do I have to give up drugs in my life? Come on, think about this. You can't begin a search for a real God without turning aside, without going over. You're not going to see God until that happens. What that means is when you pray, you got to pray, God, if you're really there, I'm willing to turn right now. Will you meet me? I'm willing to go over. I'm willing to explore this. I'm willing to do that. People people come to me all the time. You know, they say, "I want to get to know you." I mean, you're my pastor but what that means is you better be there for me every time I call you at all hours at all times of the day at all times of the week I don't care if you're on vacation I don't care if it's day off if I call you better answer because that's what pastors do you better counsel me you better preach every week you better preach a good sermon you better have things organized you better lead people well you better make all the right decisions you better be welcoming your house better be open to me anytime I want to come over you better have food stocked in that refrigerator if I need a place to stay you better invite me you better welcome me you better make house calls you better never you better never share disapproval with me, never condemn me, never challenge me, never push me. That's what people always say to me, right? You're not trying to get to know me. You're not trying to get to know me, right? You're trying to tame me. You're trying to use me. You're not trying to get to know me. How do you get to know God? Do you come, Moses comes forward, God says, Don't come forward. Take off your shoes. What that means is worship. Let go of all the things that you're not willing to negotiate with God. Let it go. Put it aside. Worship. Unless you're willing to take your shoes off, you're not really looking for God. He is fire. Let's remember that. On one hand, He is fire. On the other hand, So accepting, so loving, because of the price that was paid. Jesus took on the fire. Will you look to Christ and go to Him? That's access and beauty and warmth. Will you do that? Let's pray.